Well, welcome, welcome again. Well, welcome again to Beyond Four Walls. Um, as usual, my name is April, and I'm here today with Anthony. Hey, hey. And today we have an interesting uh, guest. Um, it's through Zoom, tech, the power of technology. But um, we're excited to have my uh, brother, um, Emmanuel, or as we kindly call him, Ricky, um, owner of World Outspoken. How are we doing today? Good, good. Glad to be here with y'all. Uh, to clarify, not owner, just president. It's a nonprofit. Oh, I'd go oh. to jail if I owned World Outspoken. <laughs> oh, yeah. I don't, we don't want to get the, the other people offended there. Um, well, unfor- um, not unfortunately. Uh, I know you, so it's unfortunate for my listeners that they don't know you as much as I do. Um, but um, we just want to hop in. What we like to do is kind of let um, our guests kind of just tell their story and like how they get from where they're at now and how did it get to this point? So how did you go from being a guy, going to Moodle, kind of telling your story since I know you, to getting to wanting to open up a nonprofit and being a president of it? Sure. So uh, as Abel mentioned, my name is Emmanuel Enrique. Most people call me Ricky and I serve as president of World Outspoken. I have been president of World Outspoken since 2018, though the organization started informally in 2016. Um, I actually moved out here to Chicago uh, almost 12 years ago now, which is is kind of hard to imagine. I've I've lived here longer than I've lived anywhere else in my life. And while here, I've done a few things. I've completed a degree in biblical studies, another one in systematic theology, and even had my first job as a university professor. I taught courses in theology and culture for about four years full-time as part of a faculty, um, teaching courses on the questions of how is it that Christianity engages the world around it. Uh, And as part of those questions, one of the ones that I constantly came back to is the question of how Iglesias Latinas engage and relate to the world around them uh, and the worlds that they have inside of them. And so what I mean by that is... um, Abel, myself, and others like us, we went to small Iglesia Latinas where Spanish is the dominant language, though most of our lives were in English and most of our formation was culturally here in the U.S. And so in many respects, we were very much English-speaking United Statesians, if I can say it in a weird way that way. (laughs) And then in some respects, we were very much Puerto Rican. And so one of the questions that kept coming up for me was how is it that as we step into leadership, people our age of our generation, as we step into leadership, how does the Iglesia Latina change? What changes happen? And uh, the nonprofit came out of that. There were several churches that were interested in support, training, and resources related to those kinds of questions. And that's exactly what we do. We offer training in the form of in-person consultations, We also offer training in the form of digital free resources that can be accessed online on our website. And then in between that, this coming spring, we're going to offer some online courses that people can complete, webinars that they can enroll in, and there's some other things related to those types of things. So our work is really centered around the questions of culture and how the church and the Christian faith engages it. All right. And... um... For those that don't know, it's 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 kind of really helping the multicultural church. So having a mix, a mix, uh, you know, a mix of not just multicultural, but multi-generational, where like you have the older folks that are from their home country, Puerto Rico, DR, um, for Anthony, 
and then us that are just first generation, second generation people um, that live here and kind of figuring out how to engage the church, engage with these type of diverse communities. Is that uh, a good explanation? That's it is. Uh, yeah. Elevator, elevator uh, uh, pitch over here. It's a good elevator pitch. Yeah. We, we work primarily with churches that are of kind of Hispanic or, or Latino descent, but we've worked with Romanian churches that face this question, Korean, Filipino. We've been all over the map. I even traveled to Greece to support a church that was dealing with some intergenerational and intercultural questions related to refugees. And so we've we've also done some work internationally related to some of these kinds of theology and culture questions. Nice. Uh, so now that we kind of got that intro, I do have a lot of Things I would like to bring up. <laughs> so let's just dive into it. Uh, so people don't know one of the things that you do. You do have a podcast yourself. So um, it's on Apple. It's on all the main uh, uh, podcast streaming. So just follow it. Um, you got to give the name. That, otherwise, how people going to follow it? World Outspoken. World Outspoken. A Mestizo podcast is their, yeah, is their main right. one. But they have, they have quite a few other ones if you want to go ahead and engage in those communities. But one of the things you talk about in the Mestizo podcast um, is about culture, you know, all these things that you're speaking about right now. And I guess I'm just going to hop in on my first question. It's kind of my, my pri primary question. And we, I mean, it's kind of funny because we, we speak about this and on a personal level. Yeah, this is, this, this is letting people into basically what happens yeah. on a regular Saturday night between Abel yeah. and I. Our everyday conversation. But one of the things you kind of speak about is identifying with your culture, like re-identifying who you are and all that stuff. And one of the things that, uh, as we go through the conversation, people are going to realize we're kind of like uh, not in, on the same page on all of these, all these things, but it's okay. Um, sure. Who, you okay, well, what shoes, is culture fluid? Because a couple, in a couple of your episodes, you speak about um, finding your and and um, ans, and and uh, ancestors like your ancestral yeah, like ancestral home, yeah ancestral uh my English there was oh it's bad there, but you know you speak about like basically like as you as a Puerto Rican you went back to your um ancestral yeah and ancestral um like heritage but in another point you uh, there was your your co-host Elizabeth spoke about people that migrated from like um, Asia and stuff like that that are Mexico that they claim to be Mexican, but a lot of times we still claim them, they claim them still to be um, in Asian descent. So is culture fluid? Who decides that? Is it the way you look? Is it your Is it from your parents? Is it where you're born? What culture should you identify with? Or is it is culture yes. fluid based on each person? Yeah, so it's a really good question. It's probably the the most difficult question of all the ones to ask related to culture. I will say you, you named a couple things in there, not just culture, but you also introduced race, right? So you introduced the category of Asian, which is itself a kind of racial designation. It's I would make a distinction between that and culture. But, but in both instances, as it relates to race and as it relates to culture, both things are complex and both things have a kind of fluidity to them. And I tried to hit and hint at that when I said earlier, right? You and I, Abel, we're Puerto Rican, but we're born in the US. Not only are we born in the US, but we were born in Detroit, Michigan and lived most of our earliest years in a Mexican neighborhood, right? And so there are things about us that aren't, um, they aren't fundamentally Puerto Rican in, in what people might expect or in ways that people might expect. And so both, our, our culture shifts and changes based on 
the the lands that we've been a part of, the places and the peoples that we've engaged. But then also our, our racial identity has a kind of complexity and contradictory nature to it as well. So both of those categories, yeah, are both complex and they have a kind of fluidity. Culture being more fluid than race. Race is a more, or at least uh, racialization tries to make something more cemented out of us. So, so oh, go ahead, Andrew. Before we get too deep, what is your definition of culture? Yeah, so we have a, a real simple definition that we use at World Outspoken to describe culture. So we say <laughs> culture is what we make of the world. So it's the stories that we tell that take life in the things that we put around us, right? And so World Outspoken, the very name of our organization, hints at how we understand culture to come to life or come to reality, right? We tell a little story about what we think uh, we are. We tell a little story about what we think the world should be or how the world operates. We tell a story about how God engages us and the world around us. And those stories take shape in the physical objects that we create, in the systems in which we embed ourselves, in the habits, values, etc. But to summarize it all, culture is what we make of the world around us. So I want to go back to, to what you said about race. Race could be semi-fluid. Now, most people will either completely agree with that or completely can, like cast stones on that idea. Um, you know, some people are very uh, tribal in their selection of um, when it comes to race. You know, you either you're Puerto Rican, you're Puerto Rican. You know, and they're still very you know pride of their of their race. And then others, you know, especially with this this new wave of 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 gender fluidity and other aspects of fluidity of just of human, uh, you know, just in human decisions and ideas. Um, now, when you mean by fluidity, like, for example, you mean a uh, uh, common sense, not well, probably not the best word, but like natural fluidity. Like, for example, we're Puerto Ricans that were born in America. So we have an opportunity to either completely identify as Puerto Ricans um, or identify as Americans. That's the fluidity you're talking about. Um, and, or is it more uh, interlined with other things? Yeah. So I should clarify, right? Uh, as I said earlier, racialization the 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 process by which we become identified with a certain race uh, that that process attempts to cement right to, to stick to us a particular thing the truth of the matter is that over the course of history race has found it or racialization has found itself to be a kind of contradictory or irrational process it doesn't quite work in that cemented way despite the fact that that's the way it's built. So I'll give you a great example from history, right? If you ever look up Plessy versus Ferguson, right? This is uh, a guy who's very light-skinned. Plessy is his last name. Uh, he's very light-skinned. He's got a very Irish-looking beard, et cetera, et cetera. But because of the U.S. law, the one-drop rule, he had one drop of black blood in his heritage. And even though nothing about him looked black, the lawsuit between him and the city that he was in is the lawsuit that initiated Jim Crow laws because he came onto a bus, he was identified as a black man, and because he was identified as a black man, he wasn't supposed to be on a white bus, even though everything about his body was from a from a visual standpoint, from a phenotype physically, standpoint, yeah. physically he was white. 
but there was that one drop rule. So so race is always shifting and changing to try to cement and pat down, no, this is where you belong. So Plessy, being a white physically person, belonged in the black category. And so the, the, the schemes changed to adapt to that and to force or cement him in his category. So that's what I mean. Race, the, the system shifts, not so much uh, our personhood, but we exist in those contradictions. So, um, so you would, when you guys implement and work with churches and as a church to look at race, what system should they use that would help or should they not look at, I mean, I guess that goes to my second point that we probably talk about a lot is, um, race, race identity is in, in important to the body of Christ. And we speak about this probably, probably the thing we speak about or discuss the most, you know? Yeah. We just recently wrote um, a, a article on the Tower of Babel, and you also we spoke about before in Galatians um, chapter three, where it speaks about you're not neither Jew nor Gentile, but we're all uh, sons and children of the, of Christ. So, as a church, should we even acknowledge race, or are we all just children of God? Yeah, should we acknowledge race, or should we say that we're children of God? Well, the answer is both, right? Uh, racialization is a is a operation it's a mechanism it's a it's a way of being it is a formation if we can use the language of discipleship it's a racialization is a complex uh, we might if we're going to use theological language it's a complex stronghold in the u.s culture right we talk especially pentecostals we talk about the strongholds of the enemy right so so racialization is that and as a stronghold it has several components to it it's a kind of slippery thing to pin down and uh we exist in the world that has been racialized right we exist in a world that that exists or with those categories right and so in some respect we we have to engage or think theologically about what that is and in other respects we find that scripture tells us that there is something transformative about the gospel to our very being, to our formation, to our status, to all the things that race tries to pinpoint something about us, the gospel speaks. And so in that way, the Lord transforms or changes those things. Now, I do think, speaking of that Galatians passage, I don't know if this is what you want to get into here, uh, Abel, but that Galatians passage can sometimes be misread to minimize or to silence conversations about race. So I've worked, for instance, in churches and organizations that have a mix of people that include white and black, and you might have a, a black Christian saying, we have to do more as a church for our, in our city. There are a lot of unjust things happening or unjust things happening in the black community that we need to respond to. And they might be really, really charged about that, maybe even angry. And you might have a white brother or sister say, whoa, 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 we need to relax. You know, Galatians chapter three, right? There's neither Jew or Gentile here. We're all the same in Christ, right? And they're they're using the text as a kind of weapon to minimize. I'm going to interject here. Okay. Because I would view it as that. Uh, As you know, we, we speak personally. I don't, as we spoke personally, once you accept the Lord, I, uh, as I say the only identity identity that identifies you is like is your Christianity. Your 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 race is children of God. Your identity when it comes to how the world identifies you is irrelevant at that point. And I would say at that situation, the issue of of downplaying someone's need 
I don't I just think it's an issue of humanity, not of issue an issue of heart, not of issue of race. Where like, for example, if a brother or sister that's black or any other race that's he feels like they're having inequality or having you know, lack of, of care, it's not of it's not a, a issue of, of of let me help the race, but an issue of let me help humanity as a Christian, as a child of God. As compassion as a as my heart is 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 contrite no matter what your race is so that's that's where like on that situation even if I feel if the verse is used that way we could still I attack or identify inner city situations without using the 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 construct of race where we're just helping you because you're in need or we're helping you because we see there's the need or we're trying to help an inner city because we. It, race would not have to do anything with that. Yeah, that's interesting. So, uh, you know, as I've mentioned before, and I mentioned earlier, racialization is a kind of formation. We might say that the racial mechanisms of the world disciple us in certain ways, right? We might say that they attempt to make us certain kinds of persons. Uh, and so if we, if we can ascend to that idea, what I'm trying to say is that white Christians... Christians who have been racialized white have been discipled toward a certain way of being, towards a certain way of seeing, right? And so they see the Bible in a way that causes them to weaponize parts of Scripture. They inhabit the world in certain ways where they can't hear certain things. They're triggered in certain ways, defensive in certain respects, right? And so what I'm talking about is deeply theological because what I'm suggesting is given that racialization has... Uh, the the stronghold power to disciple and shape a person, the the Christian urgency around these issues is to redisciple or to undo the discipleship they've existed and bring them closer to what Scripture and the Gospels promise. And so it's it's about both, right? It's about uh, unlearning the things that the world uh, has moved us toward, the ways it's caused us to see even the Bible, right? But it's also about inviting us toward a more just way of being, right? Which is what, it, ironically, that Galatians 3 passage, right? It doesn't actually erase the the designations, right? Because if it did, right, questions of gender would be really complicated, right? Where it says there's neither male nor female, right? Of course, we still believe that those designations are really, really important, right? So the passage isn't erasing those designations. No. But it is, but it is questioning the the dynamics between those designations. The tribalism the, as well. Yeah, the Galatians Church right had these these dynamics of complexity of of people trying to force people toward a Jewish way of being and well, tribalism, trying and, to get them to embrace priority of their of their race or culture. Right, it's, and Paul is saying that those dynamics go away. There's not a ranking of this one over that one or that one over this so, one. Those dynamics go away. So would it? I'm just thinking logically. Would it be better to try to of not avoid, but get away from that labeling of? Because what it sounds like is that race is just a, a mechanism to cause division. Like these are these people; those are those people. We're separate from them. Would it be more? How do I put it? More constructive more to productive. to avoid using that because it causes division or to embrace it and find a way to make it a strength? Yeah, I don't mean to be impossible here, but the answer, again, I think has to be 
a complex version of both, right? Think of the passage in Genesis where, you know, Joseph finally meets his brothers and his brothers are terrified, right? He's going to kill us because we finally know that who he is and he knows who we mm-hmm. are and we're doomed, right? And Joseph says to them, no, I'm not going to hurt you. And then he adds, what you intended for harm produced a great God good. Turned good. God mm-hmm. turned into good, right? Uh, something similar has happened, right? The The stronghold of race has done immense harm to the world. It's been disastrous and poisonous to our being, to our structures, to the world around us, to everything that it's touched. But at the same time, some remarkable things of good and beauty have come out. Think of the black church and its expressions of holy worship despite the struggles of the black community, right? The ways Mm -hmm. in which the enslaved peoples of chattel slavery, in this case, black people, the ways they resisted via their songs, their, their, their soulful songs, their slave songs, right? So there have been things that have come out of, of the black life that are important, that have to be honored, right? And so in that way, uh, we can't quite get rid of the, what racialization has done because what was intended for harm has also produced some good. And so the question mm-hmm. is then, how then do we deal with race? If, we, if, if it's not as simple as let's just get rid of it because there are things that have been produced out of this racial world, then what do we do? And I think that's the complex thing we need to, that's the next question we need to pursue. So one of the things that we, the last conversation we had um, was my term of method is what's important trying to get away from the, 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 the use of race. Um, one of the things I would agree with you before I get to that point, um, well, I, I didn't get into this. Let me finish this point first. Um, one of the things we spoke about was, again, one of the things I really see that the Bible teaches us is everything's secondary rank to your identity of, of being a child of God. So you're, you're, which a lot of times we flip, we, we say we're Hispanic or I'm black, African-American, I'm whatever race you, you, or tribe you're part of, you identify with that, then says child of God, where I would say what eliminates and solves the issue of, of division between communities is all of us identifying first child of God. And then second, your race. Um, one of the things, um, you said from the beginning is you would separate racial culture um because they they bring a separate things um but elaborate more on that because i would view that as uh something that is uh separate but embedded together where you can't have one or the or the other that they they unite as one yeah and i want to go back and clarify something too because i i know that podcasts can always be found and so i want to make sure to set the record clear right (laughs) when i say that something good has come out of racialization i want to be very clear in making note that uh i'm not saying that u.s chattel slavery has a good aspect to it that it was good that black people (laughs) were slaves right yeah not Uh, racism but yeah right does that make sense i want to be very clear to say exactly that was nothing but wicked now, what black mm-hmm. folk did in those circumstances is beautiful. Yeah, right. Yeah. It's beautiful. It's worthy of remarking and, and even worshiping God and thanks over what, what black people have done in the circumstances around them. But that's not to say that the circumstances themselves are good. So now to answer your question, Abel, how, how should we distinguish race from culture, right? Um, that's a, you know, that's a historical question for me, right? Well, it's the question of what is race and where did it come from? When did it start, right? Mm-hmm. And, and, and for me, 
these are historical questions. So I'll, I'll say this, culture predates race. Race is a rather modern category. It's a rather, rather new thing that we can, we can point to the place in which it starts. Whereas culture is ancient, right? Uh, the, the ways beginning. in which, yeah, the ways in which we're shaped or formed uh, by the world around us, and then the way that we shape and form the world around us—that that is a, a process that goes all the way back to Genesis, where God tells Adam and Eve to work the ground and fill the earth, right? He's that's people call that theologians call that the cultural mandate, right? That's as old as humanity itself. But but this this thing, race, right? This is a, a new thing that that comes out of the imperial age of the world, right? So we're talking when the Spanish and the other Iberians, the the Portuguese, right, when they when they made moves to to extend their empires and colonize Africa and Latin America. We're talking about when the Dutch uh, in, uh, in their imperial desires, right? They colonized parts of Africa, India, and China, right? So we're, we're talking about race being a theological, and that's important that people don't realize, it's both a theological exercise. The church came up with some of these ideas, right? This wasn't some abstract political thing. The church started to think and write this way, right? And so there was a kind of theological, even church ecclesial justification for talking and thinking about ourselves, and I'm thinking, I'm talking here as a European person, just kind of figuratively here for a second, but there was justification for the, the people on those ships traveling to Africa to conceive of themselves as something new, white, right? That, that hadn't happened before. It was a new thing. They conceived of themselves as white, and, and in doing so, there was a couple things that they, they embedded in that, right? So white equals fully human white equals pure white equals mature right and on the opposite end of that spectrum black is not human black is not pure black is not mature right and so these are all things that were invented here to explain to justify imperial desire right i want this land and i want these people now are you implying that for racism or the concept of race itself? So that's important, right? The concept of race originates in that imperial colonial age, right? That That's where the concept of race, racism, right? The kind of system that grows around this idea. There are, there are various versions of that, right? So Latin America has its own racial schemes. That's where the word mestizo comes from, right? The mestizo mm -hmm. podcast that, that comes out of, a Latin American racial scheme, right? Racism built in Latin America. The U.S. has a very different version of racism, right? In Latin America, it was common for people to mix, and that's how you get things like a mestizo, criollo, blah, 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 blah. In the U.S., now you couldn't mix, right? The, the goal was to keep very different, separate categories, right? Hence the one-drop rule. Plessy was just slightly mixed enough to be counted as black, right? So that's a very different racism. No. Now, you mentioned racism is new, but the way racism, the term, but I feel like racism is just a tribe more concrete and identified. Tribalism has, and tribes have been part of humanity 
even biblically, where there was a people of Israel, and then there was every the nations surrounding. There was a, 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 a separation of I am this this community, you are this community. Wouldn't that be the same as saying I am Puerto Rican, you are like, isn't your race your tribe? I would say no. So racism is really peculiar, right? We we often we often kind of reduce race to a version of hate, right? And that's that's the kind of tribal thing you're talking about, Abel. The no, no, I wouldn't. I'm not, 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 not. I mean, like as in you said, race. The I the the concept is a new modern concept, but culture is from the beginning of time. Mm-hmm. Where I would say race, though, as in wasn't not identified as a term race, but communities and tribes separating within their own people was always a reality where the people of Israel would be the people of Israel, then the Canaanites would be the Canaanites. Isn't that a form of identification similar to what we would say race is now, where you would have a separation of people? Yeah, it's an interesting question. Based off family and based off bloodlines. So I'd say no to that as well, but, but it's coming from, I mean, imagine this, right? The European colonizers that went off on those ships not all of them were Spanish, right? Some of them were Moorish, some of them were Italian, some of them were this, but they were all white, right? That in some ways tribalism got erased, right? Both well, they, both on they the white re- side and well, on the black just, side. Well, I would say they just re-identified what their tribe was. Well, that, that they, re-identification, that process, right? How, how did tribalism intersect with or get changed or or interact with the concept of race. And and the answer to that is kind of scary, right? The answer to that is that that racial desire, right? Th- this is the difference I'm trying to get at, right? Tribalism pushes us towards a kind of hate, a kind of combativeness, right? Uh, in scripture we have examples of tribalism, right? Even among the Jews there were different sects and purists, there's the kind of purist in that and et cetera, et cetera, right? Tribalism leads us toward a kind of dissenting voice. Uh, racism doesn't do that. Racism did something very different when it was first invented. It actually, the first thing it struck, the first thing that it shaped was a kind of desire, right? In the, in the colonizer, it was a kind of greed, right? I want that land. I want those people. How do I justify having them? Well, I justify having the land by saying that the people on it aren't human. They're, they're something other than human. And I justify taking the people as slaves by saying that they're immature, that they lack culture, they lack civilizing, and I can make them civilized according to my image. It's playing God, really. It's a kind of idolatry. It's a kind of greed, right? So racism has a very different kind of mode or, or heart affect than, than tribalism, in, in my view, right, in the ways that I see these things. Now, of course, later on, it leads toward a kind of hate, right? Here in the U.S., especially, where, where we're kind of thinking about this, right? Uh, I mean, we've all, we're all from Florida. I lived for, in Florida for a number of years. We've all seen some version of KKK history in Florida that has underpinnings of hate, right? But that, that, that came later. The, the first, the earliest versions of, of racism had a desire attached to them. Now, fast forward to now. I know you spoke about... Fast forward to now, we'll, we'll jump back into this point, but fast forward to now, the goal is to use what was used by the enemy for evil to transform that for good. And, and I agree with you where 
the he transformed the story of people being stranded, the punishment of, of the people of Israel for 40 days. And we transformed that to a story of redemption and grace by the by God, using something that was of punishment and consequence for lack of trust and belief and transform that to an ability for a benefit and characteristic to, uh, for us. So I agree with you there. But now moving fast forward to now to encouraging and embracing the idea of race and using that as a benefit for the church. One of the things that I see anecdotally um, is race a lot of times tribalizes church or creates concrete walls between church among church, not just within race, but within de denominations and organizations where, hey, I'm... Emmy, um, I'm Span I'm from a Spanish church. I only work with Spanish churches. I don't embrace my whole body of Christ. Or I'm only Southern Baptist or only uh, in the Spanish sense, MAE or Assembly of God. And what happens is we create concrete lines and it it's not of a benefit, but a, a, a negative when it comes to uniting the body of Christ. What would you say to how do you how do you promote race, like saying each race is important without Re reigniting those walls that create it naturally creates when you when you start being very proud of your race. Like if I say I'm really Puerto Rican, I'm really proud of, proud of that. Naturally, I'm going to surround myself among my own culture because I want to embrace my culture. I want to interact with my culture. I want to. How can we deepen our understanding of our race and deepen our understanding of that, and at the same time create encouragement to interact with other races? Yeah, it's a good question. So. I'm going to pick on a phrase here. Can I, can I pick on a phrase? Do I have permission to pick on a phrase? Go ahead. <laughs> you, uh, you, you, you mentioned or you said something like, when we emphasize race or when we kind of divide and you use this, this corporate pronoun, right? We, right? Again, I want to think historically. So one of the things that World Outspoken, one of the things that we do a lot of, a lot of is... We work with pastors to re-narrate, right? To, to have them go back and say, how did these things get this way? So for instance, how did we get denominations that are almost exclusive, exclusively Spanish language speaking, Hispanic congregations using the, ra the racial category Hispanic, right? How did we get that? It, it, that wasn't predetermined. It's not like we using that we language, right? It's not like we came up with that idea. It was, again, going back a ways, right? It was a it was a product of a church that had white supremacist ideals saying, Y'all can't do church with us. So, right? So this is how we get, you know, first uh, we get the first versions of Methodist black churches, right, where they separate off. And then later as those Methodist and Wesleyan churches continued to fragment to make room for those that didn't belong in the earlier churches, those things continue to fragment. We get the birth of the Azusa Street movement, which we get Pentecostals. And in that Pentecostal move, the spirit did something unique and reached a couple of Latinos, Hispanics, right? And then we get these denominations, but those are kept separate from the denominations that we're already building, the Wesleyan and Methodist and et cetera, et cetera, right? We didn't do that. It was done, right? And it was done because of certain, um, I don't know how else to put this, right? Certain white supremacist modes of being, right? To say white here is what is most pure. White is what is most human. And you can't fellowship with us. You don't belong here, right? No. And so... Let me just add one other point, and then I, I promise mm -hmm. I'll wrap up and turn it back, right? Now, 
if that is how historically these denominations ended up fragmenting and breaking up, right, I think we have to reconsider. You mentioned earlier, you know, sometimes people say that they're black first and then Christian or, or that they're Hispanic first and then Christian, right? Why We have to reconsider why that might be the case. Is it possible, perhaps, that the reason that some of these um, affirmations are kind of em- being emphasized is because the racial scheme in which we live tells these these persons and communities that they are something less than fully human, than, something less than the affirmation of the good that exists in their communities, right? If that's the case, then there's no wonder that the community would say, hold up, wait a minute, right? And they would want to affirm, they'd want to stand on, they'd want to shout even. These are the things that that make us whole. These are our things, and they're going to be affirmed, right? And so in, in some respect, it could be a response, a retaliation to a white supremacist world. And that, that makes sense to me. Mm. Anthony has something to say. Yeah, so is it... <clears throat> what specifically are you, ref- are you referencing when it had... when it was... you said the white saying that the the blacks have to be separate. Yeah. Like, what are you referring to specifically? And also, does that apply to us as Hispanics? Because not only is it a racial difference, but a language difference. So are we have we separated ourselves because we we have a similar language? Or is it because the white supremacist racism? Yeah, so again, that language, have we separated ourselves, right? I want us to be careful about that language and say- Or have ha- been separated by- Right, right. So. What what happened historically here, right? So there, I'll point you to a couple resources here. I say this for the mm-hmm. audience who might be curious because I'm not going to be able to unravel all this history in a, yeah, yeah. <laughs> in a podcast, in a single podcast episode, but but I'll point you to some, some interesting resources, right? Lisa Bowens, she's a uh, a person who recorded the history of Bible reception, so how people received the Bible. And she did so specifically on how the African-American community received the New Testament, specifically the letters of Paul, right? So she has a book. Mm-hmm. The title of the book, I think, is something like African-American Readings of Paul. I think that's the title. Nothing nothing complicated about the title. Yeah. But, <laughs> but she goes through several pieces of this history, right? She talks about how the Baptist... Uh, the Baptist church ended up divided into a Southern Baptist. And then um, I forget, it's not exactly Northern Baptist, but there's another another side of that coin. And it's split on white supremacist ideals about whether or not blacks can be integrated into the church. And then there was okay. a further split, right, that came from that on on both sides on how that integration might or might not happen, right? And this happened also for Methodists and Wesleyans, which, by the way, that's uh, the origins, the historical origins of the Pentecostal church, which is the church that both, I think, you, uh, Anthony, and you as well, Abel, are, are tied to. The underpinnings of that have some of that Wesleyan holiness movement, right? So so we have to go back and say, what's the history of these denominations? How do they originate? The MAE, where does it come from? And you'll find that in most instances, not in all, but in most, these these separations weren't started on our side of the fence, Right, they were they were started on the other side from a white uh, white congregation now, or denomination separating us out. Now I do have some. So we get the history, and we're but, here today. Wait, wait, hold on, hold on. Oh, sorry, Anthony. But was that be, what? 
what do you say is the reason because of in terms of us as Hispanics? Was it because of race or language barrier? Why did they separate us? Yeah, yeah, that's a good question. Yeah, why is, is the separation? Is it, so, so it's the former, not the latter. It's not language based, though language plays a role. Remember that Hispanic is a more complex identity than even a racial one, because we can be any race, right? So yeah, exactly. Uh-huh. Right. So we can have a white Hispanic, a black Hispanic, right? So for yeah. so that one gets complicated, because for instance, us Puerto Ricans, right? We arrived to the U.S. having already been shaped by missionaries who arrived to Puerto Rico. And so we mm-hmm. launched church plants as a kind of refuge space for Puerto Ricans in New York, Boston, Jersey City, Chicago in the, in the early late 40s, early 50s, right? So mm-hmm. these ended up being pockets of rescue or refuge for Puerto Ricans that were facing a, a, a new racial scheme when they arrived to the U.S., right? So, so the history for Hispanics is a little bit tricky because it's not just racism that happens, right? But there's also the migrant or immigrant experience, as well as these people coming with faith experiences that originate in their home islands or nations, right? So so Puerto Ricans who showed up to the U.S., it's not like they showed up as non-believers and then found out about Jesus, right? There was a long-standing history of the church in Puerto Rico with its own underpinnings and ties that we got to think about. Does that answer your question, Anthony? It's... It's complex when it when it relates to Hispanics, but if we had to reduce it to a single answer, many of these divisions get touched or have the experience historically of having come a having a racial encounter behind them. So, you want to follow up there? No, no. Okay. So, one of the things that you said, and and uh, I think this is where we come back a lot as well, is you spoke about. Um, Hey, like a black person or or somebody. Hey, the reason they might sometimes identify first their their race that they they that they're part of first before child of God is because they feel the a strong sense of oppression or a strong sense of 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 of, of, of being ignored. Now, this is where I always say that's a one a spiritual problem and a humanity problem, not a racial problem, where one feeling less valued or feeling like hey i'm not i'm not part of the group or i'm not part of this is not a a racial problem it's more of a spiritual problem and i, I guess i'll explain elaborate that isn't your race should never change your sense of value where once you accepted the lord you're at the apex of value it doesn't matter if if uh if the if the world identifies your race as being less than or not human you being declared or you being um, stated as child of God, that should ultimately always give you that source of value. Like that should be your only source of value, not what society deems, what is the most popular race or what is the higher race where if, if you're using or race is some sort of value to you, as in like your personal value, you're not seeing the gospel properly, where once you accept the Lord, the gospel itself or Jesus dying for you and saying you're my child should be enough for you to always feel value. Obviously through troubles and stuff, you might have the highs and lows but when it comes to being like, Hey, I'm not being valued or I'm not being heard or seen as in your value is not tied to your race or your race being higher up. And that's one. And then, and I guess I'll pause there and, and, and I'll let you uh, speak on that one real quick. Yes. Yeah, so that sounds really abstracted to me. Um, like it, it, it lacks sort of material, 
you know in the in the real world sort of attachment yeah but our but our world and this is where like i would why use something that was of evil to help us like god like the world we live in now is not the world that was that were that is we're not from this world i mean to put it like to to try to use worldly constraints to help us find value i feel like is is counter uh constructive when it comes to building the the true community of christ like if we're trying to build community of christ it's not going to be in line like and this is i mean yeah but i don't lot, think the, sorry god, to, go ahead go ahead finish with that so so we live in it god is our god is a god of paradoxes where he does two things at the same time where it could be deemed impossible Whereas in we, yes, we do live in this world and we're confined to time and all these other things that the world provides us. Doesn't mean we should fully conform to that. We're trying to build a community that's beyond the, the, the ideas of this world. So why, so that's why I say, if you truly see the gospel as a gospel and we truly present the gospel as a gospel, then the value that you get, and this is where maybe I see Galatians 3, it's not saying that you're not Gentile anymore, or that you're not Jewish anymore, but that those things neither of them hold any value because the most important thing that gives you value is just being child of god so you can't say oh i'm jewish so i'm better than you or i'm gentile or i'm male i'm better than you because all those are secondary to the most important thing that the only thing that gives you value which is child of god so that excuse me that's why i see it as a spiritual understanding of things not a racial compassion of things so I hear you, but again, I, I'll go back to this idea that that sounds really abstracted to me, and it and it sounds strangely, uh, I, I don't know. Forgive me, by the way, if you hear some purring or meowing on the yeah, on the podcast. It's, it's good. Anthony and Anthony and Abel can see my cat does not like not being on camera, and so he is all up on my shoulder and purring on the mic. It's- so. It's all right, because over here you might hear my chickens in the back. <laughs> you got chickens, really? <laughs> yeah. Nice. Um, so so I, I, I'll go back to it here. Uh, I just threw Toby, my cat, off of me here to try to get back into focus. <laughs> um, so the, the, the comments there, Abel, sound, sound kind of abstracted to me and oddly focused on, on the, the minoritized or we might say racially oppressed if we can use that language i i use that language here loosely but it sounds oddly focused on them saying see my value which isn't i don't think what actually is happening i I think that that a that sounds abstracted and b it sounds uh misappropriated like the the focus or lens is in the wrong direction well i guess i guess let me go to my second point well well hang on here let me let me respond to your first before you give me the second right because what's the second half to the coin and maybe that's why you're missing my concept okay so so in many respects when when the black church preaches the gospel right when i think of pastors like charlie dates who's the pastor of progressive here in chicago um he's been on the mestizo podcast he speaks quite um quite affirmatively about the importance of maintaining and protecting the black church tradition right it's because the material conditions here in chicago right now you know this abel anthony you perhaps don't when i did my degree in systematic theology i did my ma thesis right i did my my actual writing Uh, my research Mm -hmm. on the history of how Chicago was planned and developed, right? The literal planning of the city, right? How did the city get arranged? The physical city itself, right? How did the physical city get arranged? And there, there are clear historical evidences 
going right through into the 90s, even into the early 2000s, right, of, of uh, intentional, uh, malicious in some respects, um, effort toward the marginalization of certain communities, all of which were racialized, right? All of which were racial minorities, right? So the, the intentional marginalization of these communities, right? Give, when, it, g- give an example so the listeners can Yeah, perfect, uh, perfect example that I'll give. Uh, you can Google this term if you're, if you're interested because it's an easy thing to look up. Look up the history mm-hmm. of something called redlining, right? Redlining. Okay. It yeah. is, uh, for those that don't know, I'll say it really quickly, right? It's a history of banks literally putting drawing red boundaries around neighborhoods and saying black people won't get loans in these neighborhoods period right and Mm -hmm. that included latinos who were racialized as black puerto ricans most often dominicans as well most often are racialized counted as black from those sorts of perspectives right so Mm -hmm. look up look up redlining redlining has had an immense impact on how we ended up with black neighborhoods and cities and white neighborhoods and cities right and that and i'm I'm kind of connected to that because I have a past in banking. So I, yeah. we're constantly instructed on how that used to be and how, the how to avoid it. Changing. Yeah, yeah. 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 So that's a clear example of the physical shape of the city taking effect mm-hmm. in light of racial circumstances. Right. So so in light of those material realities, right, the physical shape of the world, the black church says, Yo, this world is built in such a way as to marginalize and treat you as less than human. The neighborhoods are built that way. The grocery stores are arranged in places to say that. That everything about the physical shape of this city says that we are something less than human. Something less than the things that are important to us. And then the black church turns and says, that's not what God says. God says to the black community that we are worthy, we are full. And it is because of that, that black life can lay claim, that black life can insist that they be treated as more than human. The the ethics get pushed out of a, we know our dignity. So it's not a question of, you you need to recognize our value. That ain't it. We know our value in Christ. It's time the world then gets changed. So this is where we're going to my second point. So I think... uh... I, I'm going to marginalize it into two points. We have people that are oppressed trying to speak and get out of an oppression. And you have people that are prideful that feel above other people of other colors and other races. Okay. So there's, this is a spectrum where I'm saying when we identify children of God, once it, it helps us, if we feel oppressed, to feel a value, even if being oppressed or not, but it also takes those people that feel that they're above to step it down a notch where there, where it yeah. helps both spectrums where i'm saying if we centralize and say the only value we receive is child of god then the people that feel they're above because they're white skin or their complexion they can say oh you're not human because the only value that gives a human is child of god where i'm saying it does it fixes both spectrums or maybe the conversation led for me to focus on the oppressed uh, or the marginalized but it's more if we 
that's a spiritual or aspect. If we truly understand the gospel, ones that are oppressing wouldn't want to oppress because they see him as equals. And the ones that are being oppressed won't feel less than because they're being treated as equals, where it helps both sides of the spectrum. And then this is where it comes into humanity and more of a, a, a action uh, part of things where you got that spiritual understanding. But then I know you speak about a lot about history, but if we despite what the history resolved, if we could just act upon it as equals, then it solves the solution. And, we, and history or not, that just solves the solution anecdotally. But but so, materially, the conditions aren't the same. So, so by the way, theologically, I agree with you. One of my favorite verses of the Bible is James chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. If you look at them, right? James says, right, that the gospel message takes the, the low and brings them high. And that the gospel also takes the high and brings them low, right? So, mm -hmm. theologically, I very much affirm that idea. What what needs to happen though, and this is where I think we need to keep pushing the implications of what the gospel does, right? Is the the minute we say we are brother and sister in Christ is also the minute we have to admit, right? Look at the church in Acts, right? They they sold what they had to give to those in more need, right? We have to admit it almost instantly, right? That if we are brothers and sisters in Christ, the material conditions of this world are arranged such that we are not brother and sister, yeah. right? And so, so, so we have to deal with that. We have to deal with the 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 messiness of of the reality that. And, and by the way, I'll say this too for for white listeners that might listen to this podcast. I don't. I don't know that white Christians, I don't know that they'll come out and say, you know, oh, of course I think that black people are less human than me. Right? Like, I, I don't imagine a white person really actually having that thought consciously, right? Um, because again, it's, it's in the background of the worlds they live in. So uh, just to give an example, we once did a consultation for a church in the middle of Ohio in in you know this suburban real nice white picket fence like you know classic american neighborhood this church was in it right and the and the pastors they invited us to do some speaking etc cetera, etc cetera. and one of the things that came up was well you know look at our community we represent our community right this is this is a very white suburb we're a white church we you know we 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 think we're we're good there we we think we're in line right and then again going into the history we worked with them to look into the city planning of their community and to look in the actual places where their people lived. And we noted, number one, most of the people who went to that congregation didn't even live in that suburb. Most of them lived within a, what was it, like a five mile radius, right? And so we said, okay, first of all, we can't just think about this particular suburb where the church is. We have to think about that five mile radius all the way around. And what is the history of how some of the neighborhoods in that radius came to be? And we found, sure enough, that like Chicago, the city that I spend a lot of time reflecting on, this city had a similar arrangement. And so that suburb was white because of redlining efforts. And within those, those five-mile radius, there were huge black and Latino communities, black and Hispanic communities, that were not being reached by the church, right? And so the church went from a realization of, oh, we're not really... Uh, we're not really representing the community that's around us. And even if we tried, there are historical conditions that cause this, the, the physical shape of this place. And then, and then the, the realities medically and in terms of food reach and all those other things, education, all those things are shaped by the physical makeup of this place. And we have to kind of reconsider that. And so 
the church then started to respond and, and consider the initiatives that it was involved in. So we have to think about the, the material reality of the world and say, what do we do with it? Because of the fact that we trust the gospel to bring life and flourishing. Okay, so Abel was referencing um, solutions, and you gave the example of the the church selling all their stuff to help the poor. The next, yeah. And, and I guess this will give you an opportunity to explain to the audience and us how what specifically do you guys do when you go consult uh, a church in like the example you were giving in a suburb, like how is it that you help them to, for your guys' mission, what solutions do you bring to? Yeah, so that, that depends, right? The We are, we attempt to be very localized. So the first thing that we do is a kind of ethnographic study. Ethnography is the work of an anthropologist, right? It's trying to understand mm -hmm. the lay of the land, literally, right? Like what's going on here in this physical place? And in light of that, we work with the church. I'll say this. We we stopped a long time ago working with churches that that just requested our help kind of in a vacuum. They didn't see a they mm -hmm. didn't have a problem or a question or a concern. They just wanted some some effort from World Outspoken on some kind of abstract sort of thing, right? We stopped working with that. For us, it's important to work with churches that see some kind of problem or are weary of some kind of issue that might be affecting have acknowledged already then. yeah they, they, they've got something that's happened something mm -hmm. that's caused them to go ah, maybe we don't have the right strategy here right and and we'll talk through and process that right because sometimes sometimes pastors come up with crazy ideas that they think this is this is justice and it's yeah, like yeah. actually mm -hmm. that's 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 some other you know neo-political thing you got going on right so so uh we, we have to kind of back walk, walk that back some with certain pastors. But so number one, we're, we're super localized in our, in our efforts when we try to get a lay of the land. And then number two, one of the things that we're that we prioritize with pastors is the discipleship or formation, discipleship or formation of the pastor and pastoral leadership. And then likewise, the discipleship and formation of the congregation. So so there are three things that we're looking at specifically. Right. Number one, we're looking at. Uh, elevating the knowledge for for the pastor and pastoral staff as well as the knowledge for the congregation as well so this is where history becomes important right so we've got a lay of the land and now we're looking to gather a, a historical sense of where we are and what's going on right this is also where if it's needed we'll talk about uh, specific things like racism or language issues right we we have someone on our team who does a lot of work on language issues we're actually um in early talks with the congregation here who is a it's a black church in a mostly hispanic community trying to figure out how to be multilingual right so um mm. so we might talk about language dynamics and she's a language professor so she gets into the real practical elements of that so number one knowledge number two the second thing that we are going to work on is intercultural skills right the capacities to engage cross-culturally and what that might mean that's a particular skill that's separate from understanding issues of race and white supremacy and power and all that other stuff, right? This is an aptitude to engage cross-culturally. Anyone can grow that skill, regardless of ideological belief. So so mm -hmm. regardless of politics, et cetera, et cetera, you can grow that skill. And then the third thing that is important to us, and this is the one that is deeply theological for us and rooted in discipleship, it's the affect, the issue of the heart, right? How we feel in response to these issues. There's a great um, 
it's outdated at this point, but there's a great uh, psychological schema written by a Dr. Helms is her last name. And she, or is it Dr. Helms? It's Helms or Hensley, forgive me. But, but she, she asked the question of how do we emotionally process issues of race? Is there a kind of schema to that in the ways that we might say a schema of grief, right? You know how we talk about the first stage of dealing with grief is denial. Then the second stage Mm -hmm. is anger, blah, 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 blah. She asked, is there a schema for how we respond to issues of race? And she came up with a schema for people who are racialized as colored and a a schema for people who are racialized as white, right? And, and, And she tries to deal with the emotional capacity to engage these issues. That one will make or break a church. It will make a break a church. It, whether or not people have the emotional capacities. Table's point. There's a lot of anger, hurt, and pain on some sides of this. There's a lot of anxiety, um, concern, alarm, defensiveness on other sides. And that's not as simple this or that, oppressor or oppressed. It's not that simple. That that goes in, in all sorts of directions and all sorts of ways. And so we try to deal with the emotional aptitudes to engage these issues. And the goal here, of course, is so that the church can engage their communities in significant, practical, immediate, immediate meaning right there for their context, immediate initiatives that demonstrate or bear witness to the gospel in light of the material conditions of their city or their neighborhood. Does that make sense? Yeah. Now, let's just put a scenario. What would you say to somebody who would say oh i mean it doesn't matter we all we serve the same god why why make all these changes when that person can just go to a a hispanic church and just attend there it's the same god why why go through all this trouble yeah i'm not i'm not sure i'd fight that person to be honest right to to the point earlier right there's a kind of discipleship situation here and Mm -hmm. i i uh this is where the old Pentecostal in me comes out, right? <laughs> I I trust the spirit to, to yeah. move in these issues and I trust the spirit to to do the work, right? Some some of us don't mm-hmm. have yet the eyes to see, whether that's because of history, whether that's because of some emotional thing related to our discipleship. Some of us have no sense of urgency around these issues. And to mm-hmm. those individuals I say, okay, bless you, brother. You know? <laughs> que Dios te bendiga, palante yeah. en el Señor. <laughs> You, you do your thing. Uh, but but it, for me, it's important to work with those who have who have encountered. I'll give you one quick last example. One of one of our board members at World Outspoken as a nonprofit, we have a board. His name is Agustin Quiles. He's right there in Florida with y'all. Mm-hmm. Um, he's right now working with with uh, the MAE church, with the Asamblea de Dios, with all these other churches. Right with a set of pastors, bishops, and I forget the full hierarchy for Laimei, so yeah. forgive me, but but Obispo and all that other stuff, right? He, he's working with, yeah, the, yeah. with uh-huh. the leadership, the regional leadership mm-hmm. for these denominations because the regional leaders for these churches had something happen. And for, for some churches, it's different than others. So for one of the, the denominations, a bunch of the people who were legally here were were detained by uh, by ICE and, and there was a whole sort of thing. And, and these pastors who typically have been politically conservative, politically leaned Republican, had, had a kind of, whoa, wait a minute, what, what's happening here? My, my own sort of political party 
was involved in, in, in deep pains and some traumatic experiences for people within my congregations. What, what, what am I supposed to do with this? And, and, and so our board, our board leader here, Agustiquiles, has been working to create educational programming around the politics related to issues of immigration, for instance, and other like uh, similar issues that have been affecting these congregations so that these leaders can then develop initiatives that, that will eventually make their way to the, the smaller local congregations, right? But, but that happened because those pastors had something happen to them, right? That caused those questions. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Gotcha. Now, um, so should every church, so you said... I know you said right now it's led by the spirit. Not enough. Does that mean some churches are going to be one race and then others multicultural or should eventually every church in a perfect world should be multicultural? How do I answer that question? Um, like is, is the, is the goal if, if the, if, you know, we go full fledged on this is the goal to make every church multicultural or, can some churches stick to their race or, or their culture or language? I'll, I'll answer this question this way. And if it's not a sufficient answer, y'all can, y'all can press me. Okay. <laughs> uh, I'll answer it this way. The kingdom of God is beautifully diverse. God had every intention for the world to be teeming with peoples of all sorts of different kinds of all sorts of different tongues, right? That is what God intended. The Tower of Babel story depicts God tearing down an empire that was going to refuse that reality. The Acts 2 story of Pentecost demonstrates the Spirit's reaffirmation of that when the people who were on pilgrimage in Jerusalem heard the gospel in their tongue, right? They didn't learn uh, they didn't learn Hebrew or Aramaic, right? They heard the la- they heard the gospel in their tongue. It's their the sp- language. Their yeah. language. It's the Spirit's affirmation of their culture and language, their tongue, right? And then, of course, Revelations tells us that there's going to be people from every tribe and tongue. We all know that from the coritos we sing, right? That the kingdom of mm-hmm. God is is supposed to be, it will be, right? Not supposed to be. It will be when when the when the story is over. The kingdom of God continue to be. Yeah, will continue to be and, and and is this beautifully diverse p- depiction of all the variations of humanity. As it what? stands today, this is the second part yeah. of that. As it stands today, the church has to wrestle with the material conditions historically rooted that have shaped the world to harm that reality, to undo that reality. That's, that's to me the great urgency, right? The church has to respond because of the gospel. We have something to say about a world that is mal-shaped, a world that is way off from that picture. Mm-hmm. So to follow up, oh, sorry, Anthony, I just, I, I'm going to press a little bit here. Um, does that mean, so if I feel my church, I'm Spanish, my church, I, I'm led by the spirit to make it a Spanish church. Would that be counterproductive, are you saying? Or are you saying if you're truly led by the Spirit, it would all naturally lead into a multicultural church? Yeah, I guess that, the. I mean, I don't know. That depends, right? With Charlie Dates, who I mentioned earlier uh, when we were talking, he is super committed to the black church, super committed to honoring that tradition. His church is a black church. Now, if Charlie came out and said, 
I don't want a single white person to come into this congregation. <laughs> if he came out and said something like that, I'd have questions for the brother. I would, yeah, yeah. right? But that, that's not what he's saying. What he is saying, right, is I want to honor the traditions of the spirituals, of the the gospel music and the style of preaching. I want to honor the history. Here in this church, it's important to us to affirm the humanity of the black uh, the black church and the historical blessing that it's been. And there are white folk who, I, I went, I'll tell you a story. I went with a white youth group to, to progressive Charlie's church. We went, we took them. It was a part of this whole experience where they were learning the dynamics of the city. And we were teaching them about the realities, about the ways that the city was shaped. And we went, went to the church and we told them, right, you know, spread out through the congregation. Don't sit in one big bubble of white people, just like somewhere in there. Spread out through the congregation. Have fun, right? And middle of his sermon, Charlie realizes that there's like these like white folk kind of sprinkled everywhere. And he pauses and he calls a, a group of fellows, some, some guys from the youth group. He says, hey, where y'all from? I know you ain't from Chicago. I can tell. And, and the kids are like kind of following. No, no, stand up. It's okay. Stand up. They stand up. And he tells them, where y'all from? They say, oh, we're from Ohio. And he says, he says, well... I hope that when you're here in Chicago, you make this your chocolate church. So glad that you're here with us. And then he goes on to his sermon, right? It was a, a beautiful kind of quick welcoming and affirmation of their humanity, their presence in the room, while still also saying, hey, you're welcome to join us as we experience God together. And I think now, that that's good. Um, last question. I'll let, I'll, I'll let Anthony go. Is at what point... Oh, I have two questions on here. At what point does that become tribalism? As in, this is my culture and I'm sticking to it and not allowing diversity within my culture. And at the flip coin to that is one of the things that we attack is white people trying to, one of the things you say in your, in your podcast is, um, um, man, assimilate. You want they they wanted the Spanish people to assimilate. They wanted assimilate, black people yeah. to assimilate to their culture or their their form of living. Mm -hmm. um, why do one person create a, a stance and this is our culture and you could assimilate within my church, but if a white person does it on the flip side, they're deemed as being doing it wrong and say this is our culture as a church and you're going to assimilate to our style. Why can one group of people do it and it's not considered tribalism or sort sort of racism? And then if a white person dresses this and like, this is our style, this is what we like, this is what we do. If you're going to come to our church, we're not going to be become every type of culture, embrace every, this is our style. And if a white person does, it's considered racist. Or if a black person does or a Spanish person, it's considered cultural pride. Yeah, it's a, it's a fair question. It's a fair question, Abel. Um, I, I see how it sounds that way. So I'm going to try to to clarify things that you've heard from World Not Spoken or some of our partners. I'll do my best to clarify because it's, it's a legitimate question. Uh, the first thing I'll say, right, I, I hear in you a great concern for tribalism. Uh, I hear in you a great concern for that. And, and I understand where that's coming from. I have maybe a similar concern. It might not be the same thing. Uh, I, I think I'm concerned with, you know, I, I'll, I'll say it in my, my word here. It might not be the same thing, but I am concerned about kind of essentialized identities, right? When people say to be Puerto Rican is essentially this, you have to you have to be stereotypes, this, right? Um, 
that does concern me. And I have encountered churches, even pastors that I've worked with, that essentialize, right? To say, no, this is this kind of church. And to be a part of it, you have to, et cetera, et cetera, right? That, that uh, alarms me in some respects, right? A version of that kind of essentialism question, um, it, it haunts me a little bit. A version of it, right? Again, there there might be other reasons that that kind of language comes out, and I'm always trying to think in terms of emotional aptitude. I'm always trying to think about why might this person be talking this way. But there, there's a version of essentialism that that scares me, right? Uh, so so I'll say that, and then in response to your kind of bigger concern of, you know, the kind of cultural pride that can exist in a Puerto Rican or a Black church that that we might be concerned about as it relates to a white congregation, right? Um, you know, the, the racial scheme, excuse me, the racial scheme is really alienating. That, that, that's one of the things that it causes. It alienates us from one another. It alienates us from ourselves. It alienates us from the world around us, right? It does that to white people too. Right. So so think about this. When you ask a white person, what is their cultural heritage? What are they? What do you often hear in response? Right. I don't know. Yeah, my gra- my grandma was Irish. My grandpa was, yeah. Eng- you know, like, I don't know there's an alienation to their own cultural heritage. Right. When you ask a person, a white person, what's your culture? Que se yo? You know, like the, their response is a shrug. There's, there's an alienation to their own their own legacy inheritance that's the word not legacy their own inheritance right and you know black people brown people have had to think about how race has negatively impacted them and have had to form or shape something out from that white people have never had to do that they never had they've never had to think about the the negative impact of race on them the way it alienated them from their their own inheritances right the ways that certain certain traditions have been utterly demolished as they've become white, right? Um, they they now only know and understand themselves as white, and that's deeply alienating. And so, one of the things I think we have to unpack here, right, is the ways that that whiteness, if we can talk about that, has caused an alienation for people who now are identified and identify as white, and and what harm that's done to them in terms of the cultural inheritance that they can have or do have and and then work from there right so uh we have we have a close friend here in chicago who for most of his life has been nothing more than a white guy he's only understood himself that way right and as he has become racially conscious and has been kind of re-discipled in, in terms of some of these things one of the things that he started digging into was the local history of his people he's from the upper peninsula of michigan right what people arrive there, what traditions arrive there. And it's not like he's like suddenly trying to be German, right? Or whatever the people group is, right? But he's trying to unpack at a local level what what are the, the gifts of my people that I can celebrate. And and as he has found them, we here as, as his friends, brothers and sisters, he works with us at World Outspoken, have celebrated with him. And there's no like, oh, you're white, you're not allowed to celebrate those things. No, there's all sorts of celebration and attempts to live into that with him. As he's invited us to live into that with him, and we invite him to live into our arroz con gandules, pateles, etc., etc., right? So I'm concerned about essentialism, I'm worried about the alienation, and part of what I, what I want to do is work with the historical realities 
such that we can show to white folk, this hurt you too. And there's a loss for you that you don't even realize right away that we have to unpack. Okay. Um, so, because <clears throat> they're, it seems like they're kind of op- opposite the approaches. For example, if a church begins to mix by saying that cultural that culture is fluid, wouldn't that, for lack of a better word, wouldn't that uh, dilute the culture by blending together versus a Hispanic or a Hispanic church saying Hispanic? That's a fantastic question. That is a fantastic question because it it gets into the weeds of all right, how are we together, right? How are mm-hmm. we how, how are we diverse peoples together, right? And that that requires certain competencies, Anthony. I don't know how else to put that, right? So the reason we do intercultural competency assessments and then help to grow that mm-hmm. skill is so that people can be diverse together in such ways that I like that language, right? So that it's not diluted or essentialized, caricatured, right? There's all sorts of potential ways that this can go poorly as the church, mm-hmm. um, as the church continues to live into the reality of the kingdom, right? And so working through some of those aptitudes and skills can, mm-hmm. can help people to live into that in really healthy ways instead of destructive ways. Um. A uh, couple points before we wrap up, uh, Ricky. Um, one is we spoke about this um, uh, on our multitude of conversations. <laughs> is I don't see, and I'll let you kind of explain this. But one of the things you said um, in a previous conversation is that racism is so. We all agree that there's multitude of different types of sin, but some sins, most sins, are rooted on a, a major concept of sin like gluttony could fall into like food gluttony uh desire of other things and you could have gluttony and, like it could just centralize all it's like a tree there's branches and it goes into a root like yeah, there are various forms of gluttony that all come back to yeah that lead lead back to that sure so there's one massive what's well, a sin there's a, a massive tree that has multitude of branches that it will be diverse in different categories. And, you know, as you go smaller and more detailed, it's specific to a specific sin. Mm-hmm. One thing that you, you kind of use this uh, analogy is that, that, that's that racism or the, or the, the racism and the, the troubles and sin it brings is a massive branch or trunk that all of us should care for. Cause we should all care for these massive roots and individually there's leaves that might fall into certain things. But if we're using the, the analogy of the tree, the, the, the massive branches we should all care about those things at they, least here they, in the u.s in the u.s in the yeah. u.s one of the things um that i said was i think there's pride i see racism as in in my anecdotal experience or the community that i am in as a very small leaf into the bigger problems that as in my community has like i feel like my community the the race thing is a is a small little branch and there's a bigger, much bigger problem, root problems that my church or my community are facing. Sure. So my question to that is, what danger does someone like that 
like thinking like that happens. Like, since you believe it so strongly to be a central problem, no matter where, like, you know, I would say any root problem or any big problem is central or is across the board, no matter what culture or no matter what church you're in. It's, it's a problem that we all face. I don't think racism or the problem raises a problem that we all face where you would say it's, it's a problem that all of us should explore and look into. Yeah. So what danger does it do, do I have or someone have if they don't see it as a as a, a, a massive branch within the, uh, the, the fight against the church and see it as a branch or a leaf, a small. Oh. Yeah. So I'm going to get Pentecostal here again, just for a second, but you know, we, we, we Pentecostals, right? I, I've never spoken it. I haven't spoken as a we Pentecostal, by the way, in years. So, so this is a little, little fresh thing here. Let me, let me see if I can do this. Well, we Pentecostals talk about, um, you know, the, the powers and principalities in the air, right? The, the powers mm-hmm. and principalities in the air. And we talk about spiritual warfare as this kind of thing that happens in the background of life, right? That we need to fight and resist through prayer and et cetera, et cetera, right? Um, the, the skins, the skins, the sins, what am I saying? The, the sins that are most dangerous are the ones that are most invisible, those powers and principalities that are hardest to see are the ones that are most threatening to our faith, right? I, I, I'll give you a completely separate example from the issue of race, right? The ways in which the U.S. has uh, deepened its understanding and definition of individualism, right? The ways that we have leaned into individualism is utterly dangerous. It's so mm-hmm. dangerous to us. But it's so far in the background of our culture that it's one of those principalities and powers in the air that we mm-hmm. don't we don't see or think it affects our churches, our schools, everything about the world that we live in here in the U.S. is affected by this deepened um, commitment individually. To, to individualism. Right. Mm-hmm. I think that racism is a similar thing. Right. There, there is, of course, all over the news talk about race. Right. There is on the news and the media, you go into social media, you see all sorts of conversations about race. But those things to me are uh, superficial. They're, yeah, they're, 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 they're not actually getting at. I love that Anthony brought up the bank that he works at talks about redlining. Right. That's now we're talking about something that really materially shaped the world. Right. That, that, you're not you're hardly going to find that level of conversation in the in the facebook comments between one person and another talking about why black people are good and white people are evil or something ridiculous like that right um the 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 reality of racialization and how it's impacted the world the ways in which the systems that we now inherited i mean the city plan that i studied for the city of chicago was written in 1909 and it was mm-hmm. part of the official planning of the city of chicago for just over a hundred years so that's well into the 2000s. This was still a part Sheesh. of the plan, right? So we're not talking about something that's just old, ancient history. This is still clearly impacting us. But how many people think about the 1909 plan of Chicago when they think about this city? No one does. How many people <laughs> yeah. know who Daniel Burnham, the city planner who thought this whole thing up? How many people know his name or how insignificant he is? He is. How significant he is? No one does, right? There are things happening so far in the background that we're utterly blind to them. 
And that, that's what I think is going on with, with the real impact of racism. There are those shallow, superficial things. And some people really are talking about the important things. I'm not denying that. But, but what I'm saying yeah. is that, that we need to get to these underground things, those powers and principalities in the air that we're otherwise blind to. And a great example of that being that redlining issue. So, so you would say, if you don't see it, it's not that it's not a problem within your church, is that you're not the spirit or you need the spirit to open your eyes that's what basically you're saying yeah or maybe for example or maybe you need some help right maybe the spirit has been pricking I mean, your heart I say, you like need you, need, yeah. Yeah, you need some help like you need i'm saying like there's no church or culture or community that you will be part of that the problem of racism is not embedded within that yeah i would say that the u.s has been formed with a racial scheme at the very heart of what it is and if we're so in, it's impossible if, yeah if we're here in the u.s we got to deal with that just in the same way that we got to deal with individualism and a set of, you know, as a set of whole other things too, but yes. Okay. So that's the danger of not interacting with it is you're, you're denying or rejecting so many deepened problems that the root is not like, you might think the root is this like humanitarian or heart problems, mm -hmm. but it's actually a racial problem. Yeah. Now on the flip side, let's go with engaging in these problems without the proper training. What happens when you're like, you know what, I'm going to go to this Sunday and become this, this social justice warrior for the community without proper training? What problems can that cause? Because like, let's say like they're like, we don't need you, Ricky. We don't need your thing. We could figure this out on ourselves. I mean, especially I'll uh, speak anecdotally, you know, a lot of Spanish churches, they'll get, you know, the local member to speak about something that, yeah. you know, did to you. <laughs> we spoke about this in our, la in our last, um, me and Anderson. Anthony spoke about this with our last guest. A lot of times we'll just get, you know, the random uh, yep. person that thinks they know what they're talking about. Yep. What danger can that bring when a church is like, you know what, we're going to do this social justice thing because it's in or we see a need of it, but are getting these everyday guys to try to do such a, you know, do a, such a deep consulting problem or, you know, yeah, deep yeah, yeah. problem. What danger can that cause? Excuse me. Um, edit that out. <laughs> uh, so I'll say, uh, I'll say there are two things that, that we have to think about in terms of that danger. Uh, number one, it's a danger to our witness, right? What are we? We're witnesses to Christ, witnesses to his gospel, right? It, it can dramatic so the danger of a church that ignores the issues of race is that it could it could hinder our witness right we we can we can show ourselves to be blind to the ways uh the ways that our world is operating such that people's real afflictions aren't being dealt with right and so number one it can hinder our witness and number two um it can hinder our discipleship right? We are ignoring the ways that it's important to disciple people to respond to those conditions so that they can bear a healthy witness. Now, to your question about that, that's, that's what happens if we ignore it, right? But the same thing is true is if we go into this issue willy-nilly and in every kind of crazy possible way, and, right? And you, know, and you know, some pastors feel like because they're pastors, they know everything. Like, I'm the pastor, so I know everything. Yeah. Um, well, and, and I don't know how else to say this, not every person who talks about race that is that is you know listing themselves as an expert is an expert, right? So not you have all sorts of things that are kind of problematic here, right? You you can a think you, you know what you need to do. We're good. Sorry, go, yeah, no uh, technical difficulties on our side, but your your recording is good. We're just having a little bit of issues on on our side. Okay, um, should I keep going? Yeah, keep going. You're good. Okay, so 
not only do we have the problem of you know pastors who think they know and go and do something crazy we also have the problem of pastors who who know they don't know but then go looking for resources that are unhelpful right yeah like like the so they go, they go try to go cheap route or something yeah like that. They, they go to something that is going to be hurtful to them in the long run right so you know i I'm not here to self-plug World Outspoken. There are all sorts of other organizations um, that that are important and significant. I can send you some of them as well, Abels, if you want to share those in the show notes. But um, I'll say this, you know, Camino Road, by the way, shout out to them, to Joan Solis Walker, who's Puerto Rican. She's, anyways, her ministry is another great example of this. But I think what we need is we need to determine what are the important things that we need to tackle first. And I've tried to I've tried to narrow it down to three, right? History, intercultural capacity, and emotional aptitudes. If if pastors can say, I'm gonna hone in on that, and then I'm going to keep my conversation super local, right? So I'm not talking about, you know, racism in the US, all over the place, federal government. If we try to stay really, really local, committed to our our specific neighborhoods or or communities, right, and whatever's appropriate, right. So in a place like Point Santa, Florida, where everyone drives around, our specific community might include also parts of Kissimmee, parts of you know Polk County, right, because it's a driving culture, right. So whatever is local to your context, if you can consider what the emotional aptitudes necessary, the uh, historical realities that are important and what the intercultural skills needed are, well, then you can develop a kind of strategic witness to bear witness to the gospel in your community. But again, keeping it very, very So local. again, so so if you would do it, let's say if, if, so the, as in like the danger of if you do it by yourself, it could cause more harm, obviously. And I have one more question to kind of wrap up, but I'll let Anthony, if you have anything. Yeah. I want to go back to the piggyback off the point you were talking about, like the hidden. Yeah. yeah. Sure. I don't remember to what church was he writing, but Paul says to those speaking about sin, to those that cause division, Mm -hmm. those cast them away. Mm -hmm. But those who have done these other things, restore them. And that's the same thing. We as a church, we see, oh, this guy fornicated, you know, especially those hardcore uh, Pentecostal. And then the these people that are talking behind people's back, causing division, getting people to leave the church, those are on the board of directors and all this. <laughs> Shots fired, but yes. But, <laughs> but the <laughs> but the sin that we can see, we, we swarm on that one. Oh, this guy's yes. with this girl and he's married. And then the stuff that's hidden that sneaks underneath, we, we ignore it. And that's just Yeah. Now, my last point is we see in a in a more practical sense these these movements that are coming about. Uh, Black Lives Matter, Me Too, all these other um, Latinx, all these movements that are coming about. Now, these are movements that are not attached to the church, but some churches align themselves with them. Now, as a church, should we create our own movements that are uh, that are Christ-centered movements? Or should we align ourselves with these movements that are led by people that are not Christ-centered? 
or I mean, not every yeah. person, but sure. What should we should we create our own movements that that are similar, where we're we're we you know we're fighting for Black Lives, or we're fighting for women equal rights, or should we align with these community? These I mean. I mean, we could speak frank, you know, some of these organizations on their own websites have things that we wouldn't as Christians truly believe in as a church. But some of our churches still align with these organizations and and these movements. So is a something where, all right, we agree with you guys, but we got to make our own that is Christ centered. Or do we be like, hey, we know your general mission is good. So let's align with you anyways. Yeah, that's that's not a simple question and it's not an easy one to answer right away. It requires great discernment, the move of the spirit, and I, I'm going to res- I'm going to hesitate to answer for each pastor because I think that that needs to be determined in conjunto, right? Not just the pastor saying this is what we're going to do, we're going to move on, right? Uh, I think that needs to be determined with the community of the congregation, and so I, I'm not going to prescribe here. Oh, churches should. The churches should invest in Black Lives Matter and they should go to Black Lives Matter marches, right? I can tell you that our church here in Chicago, because of the historical realities of how the Black community has been affected by things like that city plan, we have, as a congregation, gone to certain marches. Both marches that were started by non-believers who, you know, all the whole kind of non-churchy initiatives and marches that have been Christian-led and specifically rooted in a Christian ethic, right? We've done both, right? And and that has to do with the ways that our community is shaped. It has to do with what it means here in Chicago when we show up for these sorts of things. Um, for us, it's been important. But that that again, it goes it goes back to locally deciding, discerning. I, I'm not as I'm not as worried about those larger kind of federal or national narratives or national realities right i think the church needs to say what what needs to happen here in deciding that mm-hmm. and if they and if they need a hermeneutic or a filter for how to decide when they are and aren't going to engage then they should they should take one of the classes of oral outspoken <laughs> but <laughs> and then but, my last but yeah that's what i have uh, to say and then my last question or last my last like kind of thing is and we spoke about this many times we expect a government to provide biblical solutions without having a God aligned within that center. Why should we as a church interact with a government that would never be able to replicate biblical values without the God in line? Like why even engage with that if it's never going to be able to reach that? And obviously a lot of policies, it's not, it's not obviously, I mean, it's, it's a reality that in America policies and even through finances, redline, all that stuff is, is approved by overall overseeing of local government, federal government and state led government. But no matter how much you try, unless they, our government reestablishes itself into a Christ centered government, we can never, you know, we, we not just as a as a church, but as a nation, are pleading for our government to show values that are biblical or create a biblical center, like a, a mini heaven within America. Yeah. Without having the God of of the Bible, so why should we as a church engage with that anyways? If we know it's going to end up being a fail. Yeah, I mean, that's a question worth asking to a lot of white congregations, right? Jerry Falwell, focus on the family. A lot of these bigger <laughs> uh, evangelical organizations 
really have that as a desire, instituting a kind of um, theodicy, right? A kind of Christian government. And it's interesting because they'll talk about reinstituting. I'm not convinced, to your point, I'm not convinced the U.S. was ever a Christian nation. I think that that's a myth, right? And I think that that can be historically pointed to in the church fathers, or church fathers, what am I saying? In the, the U.S. fathers, right? In, uh, in their writings, their letters. Anyways, not to get distracted by the point, right? No, I, I, A, I don't think the U.S. government is ever going to be or has ever been a Christian government. B, that's why I kind of talk about the sort of, I'm not as concerned about the, the sort of national narrative because I'm not out here, I'm not triumphalistic in my approach to culture, meaning I don't believe that we can come conquer and institute a Christian ethic, right? That we can somehow win some battle or win some war and all of a sudden force Christian ideals on people. I think that's a vain effort. And I think that a lot of the ways that people perceive the church today has roots in about 50 to 60 years of Christians, particularly evangelicals, trying to do that. I think it's foolish. But I do think that there can be some changes. I know of a guy, I won't say his name because I don't know that I have permission here to share it, but I know a guy who ended up at one of the highest ranking positions politically in Chicago. He was a kind of Joseph figure, right? Who he ended up involving himself in the redevelopment of some of these neighborhoods that have been previously redlined. Now he had that right, and that's exceptional, right? Exceptional in both meanings, right? Exceptional in that he's an exception, and also exceptional in that it's amazing, you know? It's amazing that mm -hmm. a Christian got to do that, but he was trained to do that, the Lord called him to do that, he, he has city planning backgrounds. This is where I think we need to trust our people to do what God has called them to do. Some will be Joseph's, probably very few of us will be that will be Joseph's and Daniel's who end up in kind of government and changing that. Others of us will end up doing other entirely different things that can still change the material realities of our city. And we should do those things. And pastors should push people toward that. And sorry, last last point uh, to kind of, um, unless Anthony has one more question. So you would be against a church creating I mean, like similar to like what the Amish people do, where like they have their own world within the world. You don't think the church should do that? I do not. We, no, I do not. I don't. I even though even though you don't even though we as a church we would say we're we're not part of this. We're a whole like we 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 live our life values. Everything that we do is not a correlation of anything you guys do. But you still don't think we should declare create a, a, a strong line between, hey, you're jumping over a community, you're jumping over state lines type of thing. You don't think we should create a strong line like that? So, so I'm not sure that it's, um, I'm not sure that we should try to do an either or here, right? So in, in other words, the, the kind of Amish commitment to a separatism, I think that there are instances where the church needs to say, we are a separate and holy community. Right. But I think I think the discernment invites us to keep that as an option among others. So there's an option for separatism, right, where we say, nope, on this, we're going to draw a hard line and separate. Then there is an option toward pursue transformation. Right. So uh, I don't know, as it relates to redlining, right, since it's been the issue we come up with, came up with kind of earlier, we're going to pursue with all of our might to transform this. In other instances, one of the options might be to destroy as it relates to human trafficking, 
The church should do everything possible to try to destroy that institution, right? As it relates to pornography and some of the other things, right? The, the church should do everything in its power to try to undo those things, right? So I think discernment, which is what the Spirit gives us, the, the Spirit guides us toward, invites us to keep all of the available options in our hands and use them accordingly based on what it is we're talking about. Does that help? Does that answer your question? And to add to that, I don't think isolation has ever worked. And this, this is not the way Christ has taught us to be. That's the issue with like, if I'm not mistaken, with like Orthodox Jews and they don't believe that Gentiles, they call them like goyim, like dogs. And they have this isolation, like we're separate from, and that's kind of like the Amish. They have their own separate. They economics everything exactly. everything yeah. is so i don't think, i'm not trying to hate on yeah. the amish but yes i <laughs> i i agree that there's like kind of she i don't think that was jesus plan he, sure he he called us to spread out and go to the people yeah yes and, and become I, part of them yeah. i would i would say to there's a, we're, we're, we're 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 heading the long haul here <laughs> um is what i would say at the end of the day we spoke about most times there's no cookie cutter solution. One of the episodes you spoke about, Hispanics mm -hmm. aren't a monolithic. Mm -hmm. We're not all the same. We're mm -hmm. all different. One of us are second generation. Some of us are directly just left a, a country. Um, in my church is multicultural. I have people from the, the church that I'm part of right now. We have people from Jamaica. We have people that are born here but don't speak Spanish. We have um, people that only speak Spanish. We have you know different generations. My church is needs are different from your church's need in Chicago or Anthony's church's need even locally, which is probably like 20 minutes from my church or 30 minutes from my church. So um, I think the biggest thing that as a church, and this is what we this podcast is the need to have the conversation and to understand your solution is not my solution. And it doesn't lessen, but the need is to find a solution within your community. And, and, and to uh, go beyond taking, the four walls, right? To the name of the podcast, yeah, to, to exactly. take the message out yeah, from. Thank you, thank you. <laughs> exactly. And, and I think that's the key is to understand that the, the, the main goal of every church, as Jesus says, is if we try to over overcomplicate things, is two things. Love God with all our hearts. And if we do that, we'll do the second part just as much, which is love our neighbor. And loving our neighbors is different for each one of us, depending on our culture, depending on where we're raised, depending what, you, what the time that we were born in the 1950s. You, loving your culture meant loving your neighbor meant something different. If you're born in, in a different country, maybe loving your neighbor is something different. But if we is simplify and live those two principles, the other the 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 dealing with racism, dealing with economics, dealing with with redlining, dealing with human trafficking, dealing with pornography would be different for each person and each community. But we're all attacking the same thing, which is sin, the enemy, and doing those two principles, which Jesus uh, kind of called us to do. And I think that's that's the point, right? And you're 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 not trying to solve everything. You're, and that's where in our last guest we spoke about each one of us as a body of Christ have a need and have a reason to do it. We all have a purpose. You're dealing with this, and our last guest spoke about dealing with the food issue and making sure we eat healthy. And if we all play our part of, and and um, Anthony speaks about this all the time is. There's, we all have a book or a perspective of Jesus differently from everybody. Each one of us gain an opportunity to see God in a, a, a subtle, different way, which uh, and it's great because as when we come together as a body of Christ, we all see God for who He really the, is. The Bible calls us living epistles. 
So we, we, we all gain an, a, a, a story and all of us through our experiences and through our worldview and doctrine are able to gain that story. So I think for the people, cause we live in Florida, um, and we have people that are going to disagree and are passionately one way or the other, you know, Florida is a very Republican state, which mm -hmm. would be, you know, they have their core values that would, well, a lot of times oppose what you, what you strive for. So I think, um, and you can wrap up and answer this, Ricky. One of the biggest things that we need to do and is um, be willing to work people that disagree with us for the body of Christ. Um, and if we're willing to do that, that could open up the door to really have radical change. When I could work with you, even though I disagree with your method, I understand the value and the need for it. Or Anthony disagrees with XYZ, or we have a friend, or let's say someone that's a listener, the idea is not for all of us to agree, but the idea is to see the need that all of us have. Yeah. And that's, I see that's the biggest thing. Well, I'll say this to wrap up at least my ideas. One of the things that I find utterly remarkable that God has done is in, he has initiated a new life community in the, in the church that goes beyond any and all possible boundaries, any and all, right? It's remarkable that we've got three young men here in this podcast that that Peter never dreamed could ever be a part of God's people, right? Peter li mm -hmm. literally had to have a dream where the Holy Spirit descended a blanket with pernil on it and said, eat the pernil, <laughs> right? For Peter to realize, oh, that means I can go interact with ge Gentiles. That's us. Mm -hmm. We're pernil eating people, right? Peter, exactly. Peter never dreamed that we could be a part of the church. And here we are as part of the church. And so I think, to summarize, I think that it is remarkable that we get to bear witness to Jesus in such a way that we can see people that we would never dream could be a part of the church mm -hmm. come to faith. And that, I think, is our call, right? As we face these strongholds, powers, and principalities, we do so so that we can bear witness to Jesus in such a way that people that we would call enemies people that we would call vile or dogs, to quote uh, something Anthony said earlier, to see those individuals come to faith and, and to be bound to us as, part, as brothers and sisters in Christ. That is unbelievable to me. And I can't wait to be a part of continuing to expand that reality. Uh, Andy, anything else you want to add there? Well, I guess before we leave, since you guys open the cotal, we can sing a corito or something. <laughs> <laughs> but um, thanks for joining. Again, this is um, Emmanuel, um, as we kindly call him, Ricky, um, from World Outspoken. You can find him on um, his website. You can find him through his social Instagram. Um, tell, uh, tell us what, tell the people what it is. Where to reach you at? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Go ahead. So do more properly, you can check out our stuff at worldoutspoken.com. You can follow World Outspoken on all of our social media channels at World Outspoken. We're everywhere but TikTok. Kind of working on figuring that one out. <laughs> um, but you can also follow me uh, on Twitter at Emmanuel W O S for World Outspoken. Uh, you can find me on Facebook. I think it's at Ricky El Conserje. That's a whole another story for another day. But you can find me on there as well if you want to interact with me directly. But go check out World Last Spoken and some of the stuff that we have. And we'll have it. Uh, we'll have it somewhere in this in this square of a screen, <laughs> and you will see it on the description of the video. Thank you for joining. Thank we you, do appreciate it. Um, and hopefully we'll have you again next time and we could dive into more more topics and more things. Love it. Appreciate you both. Thank you. Bye.